welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the creative people of Austin, Texas. My intention is to have conversations that are meaningful, inspiring, and in-depth with the goal of making a connection first with the person I'm interviewing, hopefully adding value to their life and career, and then sharing that content with the local community and potentially anyone in the whole world. I can't believe this is already my 20th episode. In the short five months I have been producing this podcast, I can already tell it's making me a better person. I find myself talking and connecting with more people in a meaningful way and just feel so fulfilled and grateful. It's by far the best thing I've ever done. Please share any feedback you have and leave me a rating and review on iTunes. That could help others find the podcast and inspire them to take a chance and give it a try. And if you're listening to this through an app on your phone, be sure to visit austinarttalk.com on your computer to get the full effect of each episode's webpage and to follow the links provided that are relevant to the guests and what we talk about. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook by searching for austinarttalk.com. Are you planning to help build a church out of ice in Slovakia this year? Or did you grow up in a ghost town in Oregon? then you might be Griffin Ramsey. But if you aren't, then you should definitely listen to this fun interview with my new favorite chainsaw artist. But that's not all she is by far. I caught her on the cusp of the next exciting chapter in her life, and I'm excited to see where her talent and entrepreneurial spirit takes her. We touch on her schooling and work in film and theater, her years at Rooster Teeth, and the rest of the time, even though it didn't seem like it to her, we do cover many aspects of chainsaw art, carving, and the life of an artist. Don't try this at home might be an appropriate warning, but you do have to start somewhere. Of course, with responsible adult supervision. And there are a few curse words which she does apologize for. So here is Griffin. Well, Griffin, thanks for being on my podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so how do you normally describe yourself to people when you meet them? Well, it depends on how much of a conversation I want to have. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> sometimes I'll just be like, I'm an artist or whatever, you know, yeah. just to, because I don't want to get into it. Um, but then if I'm feeling chatty, I'll mention more specifically that I'm a chainsaw artist. Yeah, I'm sure that gets some attention. Yeah, actually, out of all the things, I, I have a creative background. Um, yeah. So out of all the things that I've done, it's the thing that... Re- has been re- just resonating with other people mm. and, and it's kind of fueled an excitement in me too to have that reflected back and so like between my excitement for it and then other people's excitement yeah. it's kind of just built into this thing I mean I was excited when I heard about it so yeah <laughs> I totally get it it's so funny too because in some ways the art form has been a little bit limited by the perception of it mm. because people see it as this like state fair you know square uh, bear like, like exhibition kind of yeah or like on the side of the road like you know presented in a way that's sort of folksy and like mm. maybe in their mind isn't like art or isn't you know whatever they think art is yeah and so um to find that so many people are really interested in talking about it and it does have this reaction and i've it was really, it's been really easy to sell compared to the other things that i've made you mm. know so i it's funny that there is an enthusiasm for it like a natural enthusiasm that seems to be fairly universal as far as different kinds of people that yeah. ask me about it but it has been considered this sort of you know has a place as a place for chainsaw carving okay and it's not in like a, a gallery yeah you know but i think ah. like some of the artists i've met are like the most amazing people that i've ever come across as far as like what they're able to do and the amount of time they're able to do it in and what they can express and how quickly they can like 
make that translation for what's in their head into the real world. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think there's like so much potential if it were just maybe um, presented in a new way or like shown to a new audience. And that's kind of the thing I've been finding that I'm interested in lately Mm. is helping be that connecting point in introducing this art form into a new audience. Yeah. Well, we might have that opportunity here. Yeah, right? I'm pushing my agenda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I hadn't actually considered that, but I could totally imagine a gallery, an art gallery, having a show with you or, you know, and having your works in a gallery. I mean, is that something that happens? Well, hardly ever because I'm not, I need to be a little more motivated in oh. making friends with galleries. I really need to because I, so I'm in Austin, Texas. And yeah. Um, it's getting expensive here. Right. <laughs> and uh, a lot of creative people, but we're all, you know, making money as creatives and the place is getting more expensive. So, um, I had a great shop at third and Chacon, which is um, pretty central. Yeah. um, Just east of downtown. And I had that for about four years and it was called the Fort ATX. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, had built a stage. We had like this really cute, like back alley courtyard. We'd have shows there. Um, so for South by music shows, I've had live art shows. Spray TX came and did some things there. Mm -hmm. Um, we used to host like comic meetups and just like lots of a variety of things like bikini fashion shows. Yeah. Crazy stuff in this like where East Austin grungy warehouse gallery slash venue, right? Um, and it was really fun. And you and I were talking earlier about that um, staying connected with people and yeah. how important that is. And I do miss that part of it, uh-huh. but it just got so it was unsustainable as far as rent and what I had to make right. to pay for it. And throwing parties isn't the cheapest uh, hobby either, you know, because right. it's really hard to make your money back even if you get like an alcohol sponsor or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it does engender some community building. Oh, sure. it, yeah, it's great. And I do miss it. And I would like to do something like that in the future when mm-hmm. I have maybe when I can own a piece of property and I can kind of control. That would be ideal. Yeah, right. <laughs> maybe not here. But um, so I moved out to kind of like a remote warehouse it's just a workshop now no one goes there it's oh. even on the on the outer edges that can't even be part of the east austin studio tour it's so far out oh wow okay. so um and i like it because i don't get interrupted and it's really ideal for working and like making but mm-hmm. it's not really ideal for sharing anymore and yeah. then i don't remember why we got on this topic oh yes yeah, so the point of that is <laughs> yeah. that now when i make something and i finish it and it's just sitting in my shop it's taking up space where i could be making more and no one's mm. seeing it so once it's done, it shouldn't be there. So I, yeah, I am looking for galleries and retail or any other kind of place to show stuff right now. Yeah, showroom or something. Something, okay. yeah, just to get it out of my way because it is so bulky. That is one thing I think is the downside of chainsaw carving. It's like just so much material. And it's heavy and it's kind of like yeah, big. Well, it's not always big, but it adds up. I yeah. can't just like make a pile of prints. Like it's every carving <laughs> yeah. is is no what it flat is. Pile. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, it, I. I imagine there has to be somewhere here in town that would be like a cool shop or a space that would stage your work. At least so you could yeah. say, hey, go see my stuff here. Well, I have, a, I have one, one of my larger sculptures is at Buzz Mill right now. And okay. I love the aesthetic there. And those guys are really cool. And it's yeah. kind of fun to work with them. Um, and they, they host live art shows. And I like their stuff that they do with like lumberjack skills and like workshops and mm. stuff like that. Well, I, do I didn't think- know about that. Oh yeah, they they host like workshops, and you can go and like learn how to do some kind of. And you would like this because you like that primitive, <laughs> right? Cr- making maker, primitive skills, primitive yeah. maker. Um, yeah. <laughs> so they do some cool stuff like that, and my, I think my work f- looks nice there because it already kind of goes with their aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I'm doing that, and I sell online too. Okay. But even still, it is nice to have a little bit of space to keep making stuff, and I want to buy a bandsaw, and I need somewhere to put it. So. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you, if you need more space, you have to move out. Of town, apparently, yeah. Yeah, and I have done that kind of, but I mean, as far far out as I 
Um, I'm fairly far out of town yeah. now. So yeah, I could see moving even further out to have more room. I'm wondering then about your creative beginnings. Like, how far does that go back? Well, I, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Can I yeah. start there? Um, yeah. So I grew up in a ghost town in Oregon called mm. Kings Valley. And it's right next to the ghost town my, my parent, my dad grew up in called Hoskins. And so um, these were like lumber towns that kind of like flared up and then died off. Mm-hmm. And then as the industry kind of moved. And so um, mostly it's just a highway now. And uh, one of my first jobs, I was a, I worked on a Christmas tree farm because mm-hmm. that's, it's like sheep farms and Christmas tree farms out there. Wow. Okay. Um, so yeah, <laughs> and I used to be like a treetop groomer. So they don't like grow in that cone shape naturally. You have to kind of guide mm. them into it. Um, and so that was one of my first jobs. And my grandfather worked on one of the mills and he was a a whittler in his spare time he mm-hmm. made small wood sculptures and i was always just mesmerized by it and yeah. he was i guess famous in his family and his friends you know like he, he did it for fun. It wasn't like something he was trying to sell. He just made things for people he cared about. But he was really talented. And it would like it, I would ask him for projects. He would try to show me like he would show me how to do a relief. He bought me gouges. Like he he tried, but I would cut myself or lose interest. And mm-hmm. it just I never really followed through on that. But mm-hmm. I was always interested in it. Whittling that's like a lost art, I would say. Well, I mean, there's people who do it, but I always picture like the old guy on the porch, <laughs> yeah, in the rocking right. chair with the the pen knife or whatever. Well, um, was your grandfather? Yeah. Yeah. No, he he did that. He had this great wood shop. And actually, when I f- got that old space at Third and Chacon, I immediately fell in love with it because it was like the same color and it looked kind of like my grandfather's old mm. wood shop. And I was so happy when after I moved in, it started to smell like his wood shop oh, too. Oh, nice. Um, and actually, that's my shop does smell kind of like that little childhood yeah. place. So it, I don't know. I like it. I think I was meant to be in a wood shop. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I think the smell is like 50% the reason why woodworkers <laughs> work, work with wood, you know, like you get addicted to it. Yeah. I forgot the train of thought I was going. Oh, yeah. So he, he got me interested in that. But my family in general, they were all creative people. I mean, they were all workers. Nobody had gone to college. Nobody had ever tried to be an artist. Even back my dad, who was sort of my main inspiration as a kid, as far mm. as getting me into being creative. He always told me, you can't be an artist for a living. It's not oh, going to happen. No. But it's so funny because now I'm really trying to convince him. I'm like, no, you can make money with this. Here's, I gave him a saw. I'm gonna, I'm actually trying to, I'm gonna hook him up with another one because he's a lot. He's fast and he's so skilled. And and you know, we had years where we didn't get along and we fought about politics and stuff that we have no control over that yeah, gets right. in the way of relationships so pointlessly. Yeah. And then so recently I went back to his place and I worked on his property and it was the first time we'd really spoken in five years for mm. the most part. And he helped me with this project that was real complicated and he just had all of these creative solutions of just being a maker who just taught himself everything and like yeah. I knew it but I had forgotten it. I became like impressed with him all over again like I was when I was a kid when I was just mesmerized when yeah. he would get like an old milk jug and like paint a scene on it. You know, just like oh, takes wow. nothing and make it into something. Yeah. And I think that's that. I think that's the thing that got me excited about being creative is that you start with nothing and then something happens, you know, and we have so much power as creatives and we pay for it because it's not an easy path. And if we really are committed to being creatives, especially professionally, there's a lot of sacrifice that goes with that, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, if you are a competitive person or you compare yourself to others and you talk to your friends that you were peers with and they've climbed the ladder for, you know, 18, 20 years or whatever, how long you've been working and you've been doing your thing, right? reinventing the wheel over and over again for yourself. And then to hear, I don't know, like if you compare salaries, if you compare, you know, retirement plans or whatever, Mm -hmm. you start to compare that, it can feel like you're a failure. Yeah. 
but then you can make something out of nothing. You can just entirely create your, your world. And it feels very vulnerable too, though. As, yeah, I mean, that's well, and you're putting yourself out there. An and people feel so comfortable, especially on- online. If you present your work online, people feel so comfortable being critics. And everyone's a critic, regardless yeah. of how much knowledge they have about what you're or doing. If they're doing anything <laughs> at all. Yeah. yeah, doing nothing. They have the time to sit around and look at your work and, you know, yeah. say some shit about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that was a Kelpali force, I guess, watching him and my family, all of them. We we were, you know, didn't have any money. So like, but the things they were able to do or resourcefulness, resourcefulness. Yeah. It is kind of like that. There's this, there's being a creative, you are resourceful and you can, Mm -hmm. but, and there's that vision in there too, you know, that you think of doing anything at all. I mean, I think that the fact that anything occurs to us and the stuff that we toil away on for hours by ourselves, like we talked about that there's an isolation that comes with being an artist too, where Mm -hmm. to actually make anything, unless you're doing a group project, but if you're making your work, like you have to go away by yourself and get it done. Yeah. And so there's that sacrifice in, in community too, where you go off as a hermit, toil away in the dark, bring it out and show (laughs) it to everyone and then wait for their critique or whatever. And that's, yeah, it's scary to do that, you know, because you could be rejected or, well, nice. you have to have it. Yeah. Well, and I think that's probably true for a lot, not more than just art. You know, I think yeah. that any successful person has to take the risk, mm-hmm. whatever the risk is. Yeah. You have to be willing to risk yeah. a little bit. So I wonder when you kind of reunited with your dad, did you see yourself in him? You're like, oh, that's where I got that. Oh, from. yes. But not, in, not always in good ways. Like there's okay. some good ways. <laughs> yes, for sure. But then I'm like tripping all over piles of his crap. And I'm like thinking in my head about all the times my, my husband at the time complained about that. And I actually called him and apologized. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Because like, <laughs> my dad is like me, but like 10 times worse in all these ways. And, oh, wow. and yeah. I even didn't want to give him a tool because then like I would, he would have it just leaving, sitting out in the rain. I'm like, you know, this costs money, right? Yeah. You keep complaining about how you don't have any money. It's because you keep having to buy all this shit over again because you're right. sitting outside <laughs> and he couldn't find anything. And like, and he doesn't wear his, I got him like chaps. I gave him some Kevlar chaps because I gave him this chainsaw and he yeah. has his own chainsaw. And of course my dad, he's a typical dude in the sense like he's got like this ridiculously long guide bar. On yeah. It. So like the blade yeah. <clears throat> for like cutting firewood and it's like three, three feet long. It's like <laughs> just ridiculous. And he's swinging it around his legs because he says, well, I can't, I got to swing down by my legs because I can't bend because you know, he's getting older. Yeah, and I'm like, well, you have to wear chaps because you're just like you got arteries there, like it's not gonna, <laughs> and you're, you've got all this crap around your feet. He's gonna trip over something, and he uh, yeah, he tripped yeah, up yeah. the stairs when I was there too, and he like cracked a rib, like he just drives me crazy. Wow. So, but okay. yeah, I'm constantly. That's the thing I'm probably the most scared of. It's like I'm comfortable with the tools. There are a few that grinders and stuff. I've injured myself on so many times, and for the most part, with chainsaw carving the carvers tend to have more bad experiences with the grinders than with the saws yeah so with the exception of them which i'm definitely always hyper aware of what i'm doing with them um i mean hyper aware in general yeah you you have to have a healthy respect for this like i don't get too cavalier even when i'm feeling really comfortable the thing that worries me is the tripping because i'm constantly cutting off stuff so if i'm in the zone circling a carving and i'm just not thinking like chunks are flying off and by my feet but if I'm in the zone and I'm by myself, like I'm not like I'm I'm looking at the thing. I'm not looking at the ground. Right. So I've been trying to take breaks more and like uh, move everything away. And yeah, that's smart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> especially now that I'm out by myself, it's like I've got like a little first aid kit. It's like got five band aids in it. Like yeah, I really oh, need to. <laughs> that's not gonna cut it. <laughs> I think I might need to invest in some more first aid. So you were trying to inspire your dad to think about creating art as actually for money. Yeah, yeah, because like he does. He's got different projects, and so and it's so funny. The funny thing to look at when okay, so here's getting back to that. 
the sacrifices we make, the nine to five ladder climbing, more sure thing success route versus our route. And my dad telling me growing up, you can't be an artist. You can't be an artist for a living. And he did the nine to five. He worked at like Hewlett Packard. He like worked at places for, you know, eight, 10 years at a time. Mm -hmm. And then he had a lot of experience with companies doing layoffs and things like that, where you, you know, you think you're investing in the sure thing, but you don't have control over it. And you have one gig that gig goes away. That's your gig. Like the nice thing about being a freelance artist or a freelancer in general or your own boss. Yeah. It's like, it's scarier. It's, you're not making as much money typically, or if you make money, then you also have droughts and you have to spread it. And you know, there's, but you also have flexibility. You've got control. You can say yes to things. The people that try to do the nine to five and also do the creative stuff and do both at the same time. First of all, their energy is low to do the, to really jump into the creative. But the biggest thing is you can't just leave at the drop of a hat if you have like an opportunity. So I think that if you're going to really do freelance, you got to, you got to do it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just think it's, I don't know why we're on this tangent, but um, something I think a lot about, I guess. Well, yeah, that's a dynamic that a lot of artists struggle with, you know, can I do it in my spare time or do I have to take this big risk? Well, and I think maybe there are phases too, where like, you know, when you have more ability to, especially if you don't have kids or whatever, and you can, it's just you, you can survive easier than you think by just um, being paying attention to your spending and whatever. But then when you do have more responsibilities and people counting on you, then, you know, it's different. And plus, I'm just right now, I'm in the process of getting like a million different insurances, like. Mm, I'm going oh, off on yeah. my own. I'm, you know, and I'm just, I'm just taking on all these things. I'm like, I can see why. Like, it's tempting. And when I'm feeling really low, I want to give up. And giving up to me is looking at the classifieds. <laughs> like yeah, giving them right. Is going, getting a, like, a, a job. It's well, so that's, funny. Yeah, that's what Bale Creek Allen said, uh, who's just next door. He, uh, yeah, he said some days he just thinks, I'm just going to get a job, you know. And it's so funny because it so, feels like quitting, but it's like most people are like, that's their like advice to everyone. Like, yeah. And it's the productive thing to do, but for somebody who's on their own, it feels like mm-hmm. giving up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so maybe tell me more about, Oh yeah. We haven't even, we haven't even, t- <laughs> we haven't even talked about chainsaw grubbing. Um, okay. So my background, uh, is in theater. I moved to Texas back in 2002. I lived yeah. in San Marcos for a few years and I went to school there to Texas state. I have a BFA in theatrical design directing that mm. kind, the, the more tech side of theater. Yeah. And then I worked in theater around town after I graduated. And I'm actually doing a theater thing right now at the Vortex. So did the theater thing and then started picking up some film work, like set decorating and makeup and everything, you know, I can do a mix of things, you know, and then started doing online content. I met my ex back in 2004 Mm -hmm. and uh, he was one of the founders of Rooster Teeth Productions and they're a production company in town in town. Yeah, <clears throat> and so I helped them for years, like with sale, like selling shirts, going to conventions. Um, started writing a web comic. I wrote this web comic on their site for five years and managed an artist mm. in Canada who drew it, and then self-published five graphic novels, one for each year. Built them in InDesign and like coordinated publishing and did all of that stuff. And then that was like I guess the first indicator for me that um, I do have long-term work ethic in me, but up mm-hmm. until that point when it came come to nine to five jobs, I, I would do them. I would excel at them for 
10 months to 12 months, I would, then I would like completely lose interest and yeah. be on to the next thing. And so I thought there was something wrong with me and there is probably <laughs> something wrong with me. But, um, and I was thinking about this the other day. I'm happy to be older because we get to know ourselves. If yeah. nothing else, we get to know ourselves. We know yeah, what absolutely. we can deal with. And then we eventually come to terms with the things that maybe other people or we at one point thought of as a negative, but are a positive. We just have to find the positive in there. Yeah. So being easily bored, learning something and being bored of just the one thing, like yeah. wanting to juggle lots of things things um can be a good thing but then that comic project five years putting a comic out three times a week non-stop mm, no wow. no breaks um and we were only i think late twice and we still got it in, up the day of that we needed to but we just missed the deadline by That's a intense. matter of hours with a guy that lived in canada i saw maybe once a year everything was done through email so doing that handling that handling the the boredom of it too like that's the thing the killer the grind and then yeah. I, that's the, the hard part I think especially for the easily distracted right knowing that I could do that for five years was like a kind of a wake up call it's like okay so I'm not interested in like maybe a nine to five where I work in the same office with the same people and doing the same thing in a cubicle yeah well and I did one <laughs> cubicle job in my life but, oh, and, yeah. but it wasn't I don't know like if somebody asked me the other day, what's the worst job you ever had? And I couldn't actually think of the worst job I've had. I mean, I've had some shitty ones. I've definitely worked and done some gross things, too. I worked in the restaurants. I, yeah. You know, like lots of stuff. I, but They're all stepping stones, right? Yeah, I mean. and, and I can appreciate a shitty job sometimes, too, because my shittier job sometimes pushed me to be more creative in my free time. Yeah. You know, because then you're like doing that thing and it's like, oh, if this is it, then I got to do something, you know, and then you go and you do it. So, and sometimes doing a creative job for somebody, it drains you way more and then you don't have any left over for you. Right. The juice. So sometimes it's good to have, I don't know. Something you don't care about. That's humbling too. Well, and something that you feel kind of like you need to escape a little bit, you know, and then your creative passion becomes your escape and that's not a bad thing because then it's the fun thing. It's like the guilty pleasure and we're way more inspired to do the guilty pleasure than we are the thing that's like. Mm-hmm. And now that's the thing that's hard when you make it your job. It's like, oh, now this is a job and you immediately want to rebel against it, even if it's the thing you say you wanted to do. So. Uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, don't life. you think that being successful is just tricking yourself constantly? It's like so much mental energy <laughs> to yeah. trick yourself. Like, get to work. How am I going to get myself to work today? Wow. So, yeah, I guess we could talk for a second about oh, the whole... Yeah, we, go, go for it. I'm sorry. Are we going to get to chainsaw carving at some point? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just figured since you're talking about rooster teeth, like, mm. that's not... That's like a whole world that I don't know much about, but it's, like, intense, right? I mean, there's, like, a well, huge fan base. A lot. They're very focused and... It's Well, I would say not focused now because they do such a variety and they have so many different aspects to their business yeah, and so many different kinds of projects that they work on. You know, like um, it started off with Red versus Blue, which is when I met them and they were just mm-hmm. doing that. We were all working at the same tech support company. Yeah. That's when I worked in the cubicle. Oh, okay. There you um, go. They were, a couple of them were my managers mm-hmm. and then I ended up going out with one of them. Mm-hmm. And then, but that was pretty early on when they were still working out of uh, some guy's house. I'm say some guy. I mean, I could get into the details, yeah, but I don't, don't want to fixate too long. <laughs> they get enough attention. Yeah, they don't we'll need just, this. <laughs> I just want to do an overview of this. Yeah. So, um, but worked with them, and I'm still doing contract work there. Like, yeah. I describe myself as a chainsaw artist, but right now I'm kind of been rethinking. Well, my whole life is turned upside down. Right. Like, I'm in the process of a divorce, and I don't want to dwell on it. But like, yeah. so I think when when one big aspect of your, of your life changes dramatically and there's that chaos yeah. you know that comes with change You're just reevaluating everything everything like everything and mm-hmm. i've been in such a not a slump because i'm getting work done every day and i've been really working on my business in some ways more than i've been actually sculpting and then but i line up all these things i've got all these commissions not to brag but i do have actually quite a lot of work right now but yeah. to get myself to actually do it i'm way more in like 
the head space right now than I am in the body space. Yeah. I've actually, but um, that's changed this week at the sunshine helped. I've started just flowing again, which is nice. It was the first time in forever, but uh, yeah, everything's under hyper evaluation. And so one of those things is, and this is what we talked, talked about earlier, that chainsaw art people think of as a certain thing. And unless somebody has a stump in their yard, they may not think that I'm something, somebody that they want to work with mm-hmm. because they can't see a way right. to work with a chainsaw art because it, it, it stands out and it's interesting. People want to talk about it and they're curious, but how does that work with larger collaborations and mm-hmm. things that I would like to be a part of? Cause I would like to do things bigger than what I can do and bigger than myself. Yeah. And I do miss people cause I do spend a lot of time alone and I'm comfortable with that. Like most people who can work creatively, yeah. But we also crave that camaraderie, and I think we crave the new ideas that we don't have that we get to benefit from when we work with other people. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm thinking about how to describe it, the rebranding in the sense of how maybe Chainsaw Artist isn't entirely it, Mm. but how to say something in that short little tagline they give you for Twitter, Instagram, Facebook you know, that keeps things open, but also like, um, sums it up well. So, I mean, I think we all, and and that changes, that's the nice thing about branding and business is that we can kind of reinvent ourselves all the time. And we sort of, as we do the trial and error thing, we discover what we're after. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've been doing the same thing with the podcast, trying to refine the message and the tagline and try to figure out like, what am I really doing? Yeah. And it's almost like you're reminding yourself too, cause it's your mission statement, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're like, why am I doing this? <laughs> like, yeah. I've been hitting my head against the wall for six years. Why? I mean, I'm, that's not how I think of it. Right. It's actually been a really fun discovery process. The essence of it, of what you're doing, why you're doing it. Why? Yeah. That whole thing, that trend now to start with why, I don't know if you've read that. Mm. Um, we were talking about Ted talks, but he, is it Simon Sinek? Yeah. Read that book, start with why. And it key, all of my entrepreneur, entrepreneur friends have been handing me this book or telling me about it. So I started reading it and it is, I do think that companies that really think about their message and focus on it. Um, and artists too, who have a specific voice and have like, you know, we talked about Jen Hassan, our common friend earlier, yeah. planning and interviewing. She's a great example of that where it's the message I mean, her work is beautiful, but the thing that's capturing so many people and, and getting her so many opportunities, I think, is having like a real purpose for the artwork. Yeah. I think know? it's about the story, too. Oh, right? yeah, totally. Story is what people connect with. Yes. Well, not okay, so that is a good segue for me. So this background with the online content yeah. is so much about story creation. And it's right. like, what am I doing? What boring thing would somebody actually find interesting? And that's the thing that's been kind of cool to watch with art and entertainment now it's with the with the internet it's just like the stuff people watch it's like ridiculous my daughter's 12 <laughs> so she's she's obsessed with you she never watches television doesn't even watch netflix or anything she just watches youtube wow and okay. her attention span and all of her friends she's not alone their attention span is so short and she'll be watching something she'll put on something on television and then she'll also be watching youtube videos at the same time on her phone at the same time. Yeah. And then every video is like, you know, sometimes it's just a collection of Vine videos, which is seconds of entertainment switching constantly. It's like, I, it's like, it makes my head spin watching her yeah. absorb information that way, but it's happening. That's what younger people are, how they're taking it in. It'd be interesting to know how it's changing their brains and how that'll well, manifest in adulthood. Like, what? I mean, yeah, <laughs> I guess we'll see. I mean, I think that they're going to be easily bored, which is maybe not a bad thing. I don't know. We talked about how sometimes the negatives aren't always the worst. I think the thing is now that the reason that I think entertainment isn't the worst thing to get into, and I do think of chainsaw art even in what I do as a form of entertainment. There's this whole side of it. Performance. Performance art. Yeah, and I'm finding too when it comes to the money stuff like that I can make more money showing up 
as a performer to carve than selling the piece. Like the piece at that point is just the, the artifact or the, the evidence of it, the souvenir yeah. of the experience. So these different shows, um, there's a lot of different ways to make money with chainsaw carving. And you can be a production carver where you get really good at carving like there's stock things you know will sell. Like mm-hmm. in, in, up, up north, a lot of bears and eagles and things. Down here, it's maybe a little weirder. Yeah. Um, but you know, you find your thing, you find your groove, you find what people are wanting to buy from you and the thing you make well, and then you can hammer away at that, become, turn yourself into a machine essentially, <laughs> yeah. cause you can work it pretty quick with it and sell. But then there's some people that do take on commissions and do like find, find the rich people, find the people who want to spend the money, yeah. create custom stuff for them. And then that's how they make their money. And then there's some people that get showy and, and get a, a mobile setup and they have like a shop they can put on wheels and they go to different events or like um, I'm about to do like a bunch of openings for hardware stores and things like that and like steel dealerships and so that's an element for me that's performance related but then there's also people that do like fairgrounds and things like that so there's lots of different ways to do it there's also the competition but the competitions you typically have to be invited most of the stuff in chainsaw carving is invitation only Mm -hmm. so it requires getting involved in the community getting going to places where you can get in there's certain events where you don't have to be a known expert mm-hmm. though they're kind of and you just work your way up you meet people you you show what you can do and then the people that run events see you meet you like your work invite you to their things mm-hmm. and yeah so then but then and usually like people's carving careers are kind of a combination of these things and what they do better mm-hmm. um and people that like to take their time i do like to take my time i'm not the, the fastest but i'm trying to get faster because discovered along the way i'm discovering that when people are there live and they su- can see you make something from beginning to end yeah they feel like they're a part of it or they experience it like it's something that i think they're more emotionally attached to oh yeah I and see that. at some of these events that i've gone to um, a quick carve. So they'll have like the main thing where you'll be carving your big piece and you'll have like three days to work on something that's like six feet tall or larger. Mm-hmm. And then you'll put most of your time into that, but then you'll have to take breaks where you'll carve something really quick for an hour. Like so that all the carvers have a chance to do some quick carves. Yeah. And so they'll give you an hour. The crowd gathers because everyone wants to see how fast you can make this log, which is usually maybe around two, three feet into yeah. something. You've got an hour to do it. And usually to save time, it's chainsaw only. And you don't have any, like, I mean, you can use sanders and stuff, but most people, there's no time for that. And the fastest tool is the chainsaw. Right. But the, those quick carbs that take an hour of your time can sometimes sell for more than the thing that took you three days of intense focus and labor and planning and all of that. Oh, wow. Because people have that emotional connection oh, to the thing yeah. that they saw from beginning to end. Yeah, so they it's, know the story of it, so they're in a way. It's oh like yeah, a we're talking about story. we're talking about stories. I'm telling you, I'm rambling. You should keep me on. Keep me on. <laughs> I'm trying. I mean, I'm not that worried about it. No. Okay. But the thing, what were we saying? This is okay. This is this is the effects of entertainment moving too quickly. Is that we get easily distracted. We cannot maintain a train of thought. Oh yes. So entertainment, art, and entertainment, online, discovering through that the storytelling. When I started chainsaw carving, it was actually by accident. Mm. Um, it was when I had left Rooster Teeth about seven years. It was back in 2011 and the comic ended like a bunch of big projects wrapped up and I wasn't really sure what to do with, I had picked up an online following through mm-hmm. the web comic and some of the other projects like podcast and some of the video stuff I was doing. Yeah. I was co-hosting the show immersion and so different things. And I had kind of accumulated this group of people and it was mostly on their website, but I was planning on, launching my own thing. So I was going to use 
broader platforms like Instagram and, yeah. and Twitter and everything, but, and YouTube. And I didn't have a YouTube channel of my own cause, um, we weren't really encouraged at that point to have our own individual channels. We we're all uh, feeding right. them. It was a group effort, you know? Yeah. So to go off solo, I wanted to have a place to send people cause mm-hmm. I, while I had them and had some attention. So I decided I wanted to start a YouTube channel. The, the plan was to just make a different movie or video game, pop culture related prop or object. Yeah. And um, use a different art style each time. Because at that point, theater and film, you kind of work with a variety of stuff. You know, like you could be working with styrofoam one day, and then the next day you're working with, you know, lumber, or the next day you're working with whatever, or painting. Yeah. So my goal wasn't really anything in particular just to make a YouTube channel to send people somewhere and to keep working on what I was working on and, yeah. and showing it. Mm-hmm. So my first video, I'm like, well, wouldn't it be cool to try chainsaw carving? I always wanted to try chainsaw carving. And because I, well, I grew up in Oregon yeah, and it was about 45 minutes from the coast. And so along the Oregon coast, there's lots of chainsaw carvers mm. and I had seen it as a kid and especially totem poles I found were just like mesmerizing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and so it was always kind of in the back of my mind. I wanted to try this and I'd already tried whittling and wood carving, um, and just had never finished anything because yeah. it's so time consuming. But I had mentioned this like years before to my ex and I was like, well, you know, I wanted to try chainsaw carving and for mother's day, I was pregnant. Mother's mm-hmm. Day, he got me a little chainsaw, mm-hmm. but I was pregnant. I was scared, and I didn't want to try it. Right. Yet. So I put it in the basement, and I forgot about. It. I owned it for like six years. Oh wow! Okay. Um, and then so then when I was going to start this channel, I'm like, okay, well, I should try chainsaw carving. That'll be a really dramatic intro to this channel mm. where I do something different every time. And so I got the saw out, and then started trying to read about how to do it. Try to find resources like how to get started. And there were these guys down in Manchac, Texas. About a half an hour away from here, Doug Moreland, he's a a local singer-songwriter, chainsaw carver. And then R.L. Blair, who's this uh, older carver. He was really well-known in the carving community. He uh, was Disneyland's, like, main carver for, like, 20 years. And a lot of the work at Disneyland, like, in the Tiki Room and uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. He had done a lot of their carvings there. And so, but he had also... So I went down to meet those guys and then I found as I was kind of getting to know him and I was, he was giving me tips on what saws to, to get, what tools I needed, how to, how to get started. He also had lived in Oregon when I was a kid because he was from Washington. And at the time when I was a kid and the place that I remember going to, there was this crazy like roadside attraction thing that just cropped up on the coast. It was called Sea Gulch. And it was like the saloon village town that was all like made with chainsaw carvings and like crazy little structures and uh, had this path. You could go wander in the wilderness and like go look at all these little things. It was this great little like amusement park, but like unsanctioned, random, just, (laughs) you know, like self-created thing. Um, And it was, had been inspired by that place, you know, like when I saw this art form, it turns out he and his friend made that. Like he was the carver that built the thing that intrigued me into chainsaw carving in the first place. And randomly he's in Texas 30 minutes from me when I decide that I want to learn this. It's like fate. It feels like fate. Yeah, no, (laughs) totally. And since then he has become kind of like a second father to me. Mm. He definitely got me started though. I I wouldn't give him, I give him a lot of credit for being my mentor and he is, but um, I had a lot of mentors in this art form. It's like Mm -hmm. everyone I meet, that I work with, like I learn from, and you know, we are these solo artists on our own and the carving world. They're definitely very solo hardcore people. I mean, anyone will pick up a chainsaw and go and makes it. That's like a certain level of crazy loner person, you know, not not crazy loner. I mean, there's actually very (laughs) kind people, but you know what I mean? I think it takes a certain kind of like personality to like, for that to even occur to them to do it. And it takes a certain amount of, uh, 
fearlessness mm. to get started. And then the, but there's a lot of different kinds of people doing it too. I mean, I'll get to that later, but the yeah. community is full. They all come from different backgrounds and it also informs their work. You know, some come from the lumber world or logging and then found they could make art with it. Mm. And then other people were like, have like MFAs and were like, you know, into sculpture and found, oh, the chainsaw is the perfect tool. Because it really is, if you're working with wood or ice, it really is the perfect tool. It's super fast. It's incredibly versatile. Mm -hmm. And you can, I have like nine saws and they all have like different bars on them. But yeah. so you can start to customize and get smaller or larger bars depending on what you're going for and chain and everything. But mm -hmm. um, for the most part, if you have like a 12 inch carving bar on a fairly lightweight saw, and you can really accomplish so much in a short amount of time. I mean, the fact that you can make a beautiful sculpture in an hour mm -hmm. out of a solid log and sell it for hundreds of dollars. I mean, that's a lot of power to have if you have yeah. the brain. And, and, and also the thing that's great about the chainsaw is that it's, it is so fast. And, you know, as when you're creating, you have this idea of what you want. And um, usually, I mean, sometimes people find it depends on their process. But if you have an idea of what's in your head or what you feel or you want to make, to be able to get that done... And in, within an hour to a couple of days, like that's, you're going to have the most pure expression, the, the less time it takes you mm -hmm. because yeah. you start to, to modify a little better. You start to like cut corners as it takes longer or life gets in the way or, or you get influenced by other things as you're working. So mm -hmm. I think that like in some ways it's a really pure form of expression. Yeah, and I love the, how solid it is too. I, as, as much as I bitch about the, the material being heavy and it's like in yeah. the way all the time. It's nice and solid. Like and longevity. I, yeah, and I like the I like making art that people can touch. Like I'm not worried about them coming up and hurting it. You know. Like, yeah. Oh I, yeah, right. I like that. Yeah. I like I like touching everything. I always get on my daughter's case. We'll go into a store. I'm like, don't touch everything while I'm touching everything. <laughs> like I touch everything. So I like I like something people don't have to worry about. You know. Yeah. Like they can come up and put their hands on it or like really experience it. Not to sideline us too much, but I'm just wondering. Oh, we're, like, we're so sidelined. Yeah, I don't even know where know. the line is. <laughs> how do you feel? How do you think about wood and trees? Like, I mean, how macro have you gotten into that? Like, just like how trees grow, or just, I mean, you must be, feel very connected to wood in general. I like, do, and I think growing up in Oregon is a lot, a lot of that, and growing up in this like lumber town. I mean, I grew up in a mill town. Well, I grew up, you know, in the in Kings Valley, which is mm -hmm. a ghost town now. But then I went to school in Philomath, Oregon. And Philomath is uh, not too far from Corvallis. I don't know how familiar you are with mm -hmm. Oregon. So Philom Philomath has maybe like 4,000 people. And uh, it had the mill. That's where my grandfather worked at the mill. And yeah. it was sort of, um, there was this grant. The reason I was able to go to college at all, because like my parents didn't go, like nobody in my family really went. There was a grant through the high school. It's called the Clemens Fund. Mm -hmm. And Rex Clemens was this, um, one of the first loggers up there to start replanting, start thinking about mm the future, like, oh, we're cutting all these trees down. We should probably put them back, you know, yeah. like started to think about it. And he also set up things for the schools because he didn't want everyone there in the community to be destined for the mill or destined to like be logging or whatever. Yeah. Like he yeah. wanted people to have opportunity wow. because of this industry. So he set up this fund and um, anyone who graduated from my high school had their college tuition paid for up to the amount that was going for it, like OSU like Oregon State University. That yeah. was sort of like the line as the rates went up at OSU, then the money went up to match. Yeah. So you could go to, if you could get into Harvard or whatever, you could go to a nice school, but you only had the grant up to whatever OSU was. Right. But still, that's great, great opportunity. Wow, that's wonderful. Well, they started to make it harder because people would move to town for one year 
get oh, it and leave. Wow. So then they, okay. by the time I, but I went like all 12 years at that school district. So I was, I was eligible and I think they've, they've changed it since. And then I think it may only be available to forestry students now, which we had a forestry department in my school. In my head, I'm like, I didn't go, I didn't, I didn't take advantage. It's so stupid now. Cause I would wish I had taken those classes. But at the time I was like a drama student artist yeah. type. And I was like, too cool because it was well it was all the like it wasn't my crowd that hung out there and they did not like me and so i was maybe i missed out on a pretty cool opportunity because and in my head it was like every school had a forestry thing i didn't realize how how unusual and interesting that was and like how what a cool thing it was in my town and so lumber i remember getting really sad but like there was this, this hill in king's valley that got clear cut it just was so ugly yeah. It made me like really sad as a kid because I just love being like surrounded by all these trees. I grew up in a valley with, and the, the trees up there are so tall. I mean, in Texas, there's nothing that compares to it. Yeah. Even, and I keep hearing about the East Texas pine forest, just whatever. Stop. <laughs> Texas, you're big, but you're not. Yeah, right. Your trees aren't. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so it was really ugly and I had this terrible reaction to it, but I also had that kind of same reaction to hunting, you know, that we talked about earlier yeah. before we got started, this idea of, especially being vegetarian at the time, like that it's just all evil. It's all terrible. But then you get older and then you start to learn more about everything and how these, these process, they're terrible. They're terrible. They're kind of ugly, the process, but it's also providing, Mm -hmm. you know, for people. It's like providing for houses. It's providing for whatever. So like, and I probably would have learned this in forestry if I had taken the class, but there is a certain amount of responsible harvesting that should happen. And then you look at the forest fires in California now and up in Oregon is actually a big problem when it gets to be a drought up there, you know? So you do have to kind of do responsible cutting back anyway, just so things don't spread. There's a whole management to, you can't just let everything grow as it does. You have to kind of go and and prune. Same thing with like the hunting thing we talked about with the deer. It's like eventually it's overrun and it's worse to just let it go. Unmanaged. So I think that yeah. that's the thing I think that we're learning as people now is just responsible ways of, of still getting those things and doing what we need to do and, I guess, harvesting where we need to harvest, but then also not entirely, like, wiping everything out at the same time. Like, that, that clear-cut hill. And when I went up and I was working with my dad when I, I told you about it, yeah. um, that hill has grown back since. Like, it was funny. I drove by and I'm like, oh, my God, it's already... Like they had replanted it, and my dad said it'll grow back. And you know, as a child, I'm like, no, it never will. Like yeah, you know. Right. But now I see it, and I'm old enough to see. Oh, those trees are back. You know. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I'm just wondering. I'm wondering if you have any kind of like a a ritual when you're gonna carve into a log, or like just kind of like a gratitude. One positive thing about chainsaw carving, as far as uh, the use of the material, is that we aren't limited and sometimes we're inspired by the weird twisty bits they can't put through the mill, mm-hmm. like the root balls or like the, the Y in the wood or like the big knot or the burls and things like all this, the sort of the imperfections and the pieces that may not be useful for a house. And that's a lot of times what we're working with because first of all, it's more affordable. We can get good deals on it because they yeah. can't use it for boards anyway. It also is kind of inspiring to sometimes work with the, the organic shape that's there. And a lot of times one thing I really do love working about with there's ups and downs to working with an organic material that changes every time and is different all the time. You have sometimes find things you don't want to find like a big rotten hole or like a bunch of ants. I'm working with something. I just found so many ants. Oh, <laughs> like, wow. Okay. But then sometimes a piece will come out of it that I would never, if I had just been working with styrofoam or something that is just what it is and you carve what you want, you put your, you, you force your idea onto it and it doesn't influence it. Like then, then that is what is in my head and that's what comes out. But if I'm working with wood, I'm following the natural shape. I'm saying, okay, this is what I have to work with. 
all right, I'm going to cut off this because it's rotten. I'm going to take off all the sapwood because it's going to, it's got bugs in it and it's going to deteriorate faster. So get it down to what I have to work with. And then I sculpt from that. So there, it's almost like a conversation with the material. Like a dance. Yeah, definitely. And then you discover things along the way. And then as I get better, I'm learning how to correct mistakes and also deal with issues with wood because sometimes it is really frustrating when you're sculpting this beautiful thing. And of course the one area you need to be detailed, all the wood just crumbles away and there's like no no Mm. material there. So just, and that can be really frustrating, but then part of skill and experience is learning how to cope with it and deal with it. So I'm sure you got a lot of that. Like we were talking earlier about your mentors. So you, you found these mentors close by and you started working with them and learning how to do this. Uh, Yes. But but for that, actually, that skill and that knowledge didn't come from the mentor I spoke of. Mm. It's been a, it's like a bunch of people in this whole community of people that do this. And a lot of times I learn not in Texas at all. I'm somewhere else. And I learn, I work with different kinds of wood. Here, I mostly work with eastern red cedar because that's what, what's here and mm. what it will hold up outside and what is carvable. But it, and it's great. And most of my work has this look because of the material I use. It's got that dramatic red center and then it has the light blonde sort of sapwood mm-hmm. on the outer edge of it. And that text, that Texas red cedar has that look, you know, but then I'll go up to Pennsylvania. Everything I make in Pennsylvania is on white pine mm. and Germany. I'll go to Germany and it's an oak. And so my work changes based on location, based on the wood I get offered and, and I'm getting this different set of skills and knowledge like pine. I can't do the same thing I do with cedar because it's fuzzy. So like there's the details come across different. And if it's wet, if I'm carving like in the snowstorm, how do I, how do I sand it when it's completely soaked? Yeah. You know, like, oh, well I learned I got to burn it a little bit on the outer edge. Like take the torch and I burn it till just the outer edge is toasty enough to sand it. You Mm -hmm. know, like there's certain things you learn using different, with different varieties of wood, different locations. And when it comes to a lot of the mistakes and the oh shit moments, that's usually in an event when I have three days and I've had this whole thing planned around this log and suddenly the log isn't what I thought it was. So then I'm relying on my friends from all over the world who can give in, who are sometimes my competitors still helping me out because that community is like that, which is nice. You know, like we're not stingy with our information. It's how we've gotten our information because most of us came to this art form just fucking around on our own with a chainsaw. We didn't know what we were doing. You know, we didn't know what we needed to have or how to use it. We just kind of started making and then we connect with the community and then we learn the tricks like, Oh, this guy's been carving for 30 years. He's seen everything. He's done everything. And he's just gave me a tiny little piece of information. That's going to save me two years of trial and error, Mm. you know? So I think we accelerate the most going to these events. Um, it's maybe not the sometimes the most effective way to make money. If I only cared about money, I would probably just lock myself in my shop and focus on production and do that. But my professional development and my artistic development comes through these chainsaw carving events. Um, and it's they, more fulfilling. Yeah. For uh, well, and it's, ins- it's also a way to recharge too and remind, get reminded about why I love it. Uh, I'll go to these events and I'll just get, see these things that people are doing and get filled up again and, and talk about this art form with people who actually care about it and don't get bored <laughs> in the yeah. middle, you know, like, or I want to talk maybe for two hours about chain, you know, yeah. like stuff that nobody <laughs> in, in the world is going to do with me. Right. Even people that, you know, work with, like I'll get on to like my local dealership and talk to those guys about saws or whatever, but they use it for a certain thing or they're really dealing with like arborists or like like, people working with, you know, just cutting and all they need is a saw that's going to cut limbs and that's what they're, but, but what we do is so different and specialized. So it is really important to have that community. And it's also, as I meet and make friends, I get invited to more opportunities. And the thing I'm really 
that has been so amazing about this art form is that it's taken me all over the world. I've competed and not just competed, but not every event is a competition, but a lot of the international travel I've done has been around competitions because that's why they invite people from, if it were just like a production event, they wouldn't feel the need to bring people from all over the world. Yeah, sure. So I've been to, I've competed in England and in Scotland, um, in Australia a couple of times. Um, I did an event in Germany that was more of a residency and I'm going back there for their big competition, except that, uh, so I'm going to the Husky Cup and yeah. most of you don't, aren't, don't realize what a big deal it is. <laughs> Let me just tell you, it's a really big deal. The okay. Husky Cup is like the biggest, the big, big deal chainsaw carving event. Okay. It's like one of the biggest in the world as far as status. It used to be a competition though, Andreas, the organizer has made it non-competitive, but it's still like, it's a clout kind of thing. He invites the best of the best in the world. Mm-hmm. And so he invited me to come this year, but he's putting me on the Czech speed carving team. Okay. So I'm going to be <laughs> competing with Czech and Slovakian. And I think oh, there's wow. a dude from Poland. He's going to be there too. So like, and I'm going to be on this team with all the Eastern Europeans. So, <laughs> nice. and I'm not really a speed carver and I'm not Czech, but I'm going to be a Czech speed carver uh, next month. You're taking the challenge. Uh, it'll be interesting. It'll be a learning experience. And I do like those guys. And um, uh, when I was in Germany last, I met a lot of those people from uh, Czech Republic and Slovakia and made friends with them and got the invitation to carve an ice church in Slovakia in mm. this coming November. It's a 20 day event. Some, I kind of partied my, I partied my way into that opportunity, but we all got drank together enough okay. to where like I, as a joke kind of, it was a, it was a process, but I convinced yeah. them to invite me. We shook on it. I took a picture of the handshake. It's like <laughs> locked in. So, um, but he's like, all right, you better learn some ice carving then. So I'm like, okay, yes. So yeah. now, um, next month I have to go do this like ice carving boot camp up on the East coast. And I've been working with this guy locally who does ice carving, um, full spectrum ice. So he helped, let me help him with his holiday production stuff um, for Christmas. Cause he gets ah. really busy around Christmas. So I've been learning some ice carving. Well, that's a whole nother thing. It is a whole, it is a whole nother <laughs> thing. It's interesting to use these tools that I've been using for wood and like mm. had been learning from as a wood carver and apply them to ice, like a totally different material. And there's some ups and downs to ice, like some things that are kind of interesting that I can appreciate, like it's see-through. So if I need to make a precise cut, like say draw a line with my saw six inches into the material straight through to do that with wood, it's like, all right, I have an idea. There's my bar is about here. That's about six inches in. I'm going to just try to eyeball that, draw a line with a Sharpie on my bar or something. Mm -hmm. But with ice, I can just, yeah, look to the side and as I cut, exactly where I'm at but -hmm. it's super fragile it's crazy heavy like it's every block is like 300 pounds or something and it's real easy to like if you slip like you can really cut through the material and it's visible I mean you can patch it cut and fuse but it's still you always see that seam whereas wood I can hide seams better if I make a mistake I can patch it and hide it easier with Mm. matching the grain so it's just different totally different way of Wow, it sounds like you're going to be doing some badass things this year. Yeah, no, the year is really picking up for sure. Um, So November, that's 20 days in Slovakia, building this ice church that they use for months, like they have tons of weddings and events and stuff in it. And they light it up and it's beautiful. And uh, it's going to be like... 20 other carvers, all men, mostly like from like Russia, Eastern Eastern European people, maybe maybe a little bit from Germany. I'm not really sure who's going to be there. And then me, I think I'll be the only American and the only female. And I don't know that any women have ever carved. I need to find out before I, but I kind of get the sense that I don't know that there's a lot of women doing that. So, um, I mean, already there's not quite, not not, not nearly as many women working in chainsaw carving. Yeah. What is that like? Um, Well, I mean, I was in, it's Internet. not like an old boys club, is it? Well, I mean, I mean, I've encountered a few things that 
and it took me a while to find them. Yeah. At the beginning, I didn't feel it at all. I was really like, oh my God, this is amazing. Isn't it crazy how like just accepting and immediately, you know, I had that moment and coming out of the gaming internet scene, I was already in a boys club. Oh, right. And I'm kind of used to being in that. Okay. I'm kind of used to being in a male dominated thing in general. So it's like, but some of the things I encountered in gaming, I felt in some ways chainsaw carving were, was way more progressive. <laughs> it's okay. like hanging out with like, you know, fairly, not all backwoodsy people, but some, and I, and I was, didn't encounter as much sexism as I had with like these, you know, declared modern sort of people that were yeah. really kind of, I mean, the gaming world with all the booth babes and the, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a scene. So in some ways I felt like it was a lot more progressive, but there's certain things that I've encountered, some walls that I've hit now being female. And I don't want to dwell on them to make it seem like the chainsaw carving isn't a place for women because it really is. And the saws are getting, as the technology improves, the saws are getting lighter. I've held some of those older saws. They used to be like made out of, entirely out of metal and just, just crazy heavy. And I can see how there would have definitely been a barrier to entry 20 years ago or something with mm-hmm. the technology. But now everything is so light and things are geared toward homeowners. And we're not all lumberjacks. Most people who own a chainsaw aren't a lum- <laughs> yeah. They're not lumberjacks. Right. So there's no reason why women can't use these tools. And there are plenty of women that are doing it and more, more so all the time, but I don't see as many of them at the competitions. And I don't know if that comes from, because it's an invitation only not being invited because they're all the men keep getting invited or if the women aren't as aren't pushing for that as much or maybe a combination, but there are some maybe more than you might think. Yeah. I guess Yeah, there was, I'd watched a video of the uh, residency in Germany and that you did a, Oh uh, yeah, collaboration with another woman. Yeah, her name is Race Hoffman, and she's amazing. She's only been carving for like two years, and she's way better than me. Um, oh, wow. But I'm, yeah, she's cool. I'm actually going to be carving. I'll be see her when I go back to Germany. She's going to be there. I'm yeah. excited. Yeah, she's a badass, and she was like immediately sponsored by like Husqvarna, and like she's got, and she's doing really well. She does a ton of shows. She just won a speed carving competition against a bunch of, like a bunch of German dudes. Mm-hmm. So, um, and they're they can be pretty competitive. Um, at some of those things. So I think that uh, she's doing really well for herself. No, and there's some women in the field that are just like amazing. There's an Australian woman, Angie Polglaze, who does really unique work and she uses paint a lot, lots of thick, bright paint. And mm. most carvers don't use paint or they're, a lot of people who like wood, who want to buy a wood sculpture, want to see the wood grain. And that's the thing I've discovered I tend to, if I leave wood grain showing, it's going to sell better and people are going to respond to it more. And I do like to see it as well because yeah. I think the people who like wood and feel that affinity with it. Then it could just be made out of anything if it's painted, Yeah, exactly. Right? So it's definitely, it's a risk. It's like a bold move, but she does it in a way that her style is so unique mm. that that it works. But um, but not as many people are going that extreme with it, I guess, when it comes to color and everything. I do like that she uses color. I guess I'm just, I'm wondering... If we're going to start winding down, I guess I'd like to just really know about the artistry part of it, the creativity part, the creativity that you brought through your life to into carving and then kind of like how that manifests, you know, when you're creating something. Well, so starting with getting back to the entertainment, my background is being in theater and film and online content, the storytelling aspect of it, the working, I guess, with things that are more pop culture and stuff that maybe people that finding that new, that new audience for this art form. Like I'm not going to be the one to get people excited about bears and eagles because like, I'm not excited about bears and eagles. Yeah. And you were talking about doing those videos. You would take challenges and people would have you do very mainstream kind of pop culture. So, so the first video I put out, which is the first time, first completed chainsaw carving that I ever made. And now I cringe watching that video because I'm just like, 
I don't know what I'm doing and I just put it out there, you know? Yeah. Um, I guess not knowing that this would become a thing for me. Like I was just fucking around. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just swearing a lot on your podcast. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> a lot of time beeping everything out. Um, it started with video and the first completed chainsaw carving was the Crimson Omen, which is the logo from Gears of War. And mm-hmm. the reason I even did the chainsaw carving thing is because somebody on on Twitter like asked me to make something to do with Gears of War because the game was the, a new iteration of the game was coming out yeah. around the time I started chainsaw carving. So they're like, I was like, oh, well, there's that Lancer, which is the chainsaw gun in the game. I'm like, that would be a great reason to use the chainsaw to make this thing because this game is coming out. And I think the video will be popular because the game is coming out. Yeah. That was my reasoning to get into chainsaw carving other than just wanting to try it. Right. But it was all based around, oh, there's this popular game. Oh, there's a chainsaw gun in the game. Oh, yeah. chainsaw carving. So that's ah, how it started. Right. And um, I made this logo. And the video did pretty well. It went relatively viral. I mean, not like millions of views, but it got maybe 200,000 views or something. Like for a first video, that was pretty good. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, shit, well, maybe there's something here. And at that point, I'd already decided, oh, well, I, this is fun. Like mm-hmm. I picked, I did the one carving and I'm like, all right, well, I'm a carver now. That's what's happening. Yeah. And I think that I would have really been into carving even younger if the tool had been faster, like. Mm. I, whittling and do, I'm just having a, I have a short attention span. Yeah. We talked about that. <laughs> yeah. And chainsaw is a great tool for somebody with a short attention span. Cause it's very fast. Um, and if you get decent at it, like you can really make some beautiful things, really detailed things really quickly. So that video did well. I experimented with some other things that were more personal. They did not do very well. So then I was started going back to the challenge stuff. So I created a show around it called challenge accepted and mm-hmm. got a friend or not a friend, but I hired a girl to, um, animate a little intro for it. Um, got some friends to help me with, um, videography and editing. And it's kind of been my yeah, channel. Fun. I watched them. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So then I'll get somebody usually to request on Twitter. I'll ask, Hey, what does everyone want to see? And uh, one that came up, everyone wanted to see was Groot because Guardians of the Galaxy had just come out. And so I carved Groot and put it out pretty quickly after the movie came out. And that one did really well too. And I found that the videos that I do, especially around a figure that is already wood, Mm -hmm. like I did Majora's Mask around the time that The Legend of Zelda and another game came out. uh, And that one did really well too. Where in general online, I'm finding with online content is people don't necessarily want to see anything original people tend to want to see or, or they, they want to see something they already recognize yeah. they want to see it done in a new way like right. they, they want to they want to see the familiar and they want to see like an interesting take on the familiar but mm-hmm. a lot of times i'm finding as far as popularity goes people sort of yeah for your audience the internet has really reinforced pop culture because we are all really aware of what's popular at the moment worldwide mm-hmm. more than i think more than we ever have been yeah you know and we're not being told this is what you need to watch. Like, we're not being told by like a network. Okay, this is what's entertainment. You're going to watch this and we'll get the ratings and we'll decide. No, it's immediate response. Mm-hmm. We immediately have a decision, deciding power, I suppose, on what's popular just by viewing it. Mm-hmm. So um, it's kind of an interesting experiment to, to combine some of those things that I've learned from working with Rooster Teeth and, and being a part of that collective enthusiasm of online content and entertainment. And then taking this sort of like rustic art form and figuring out how to, how to, how to use that knowledge in this way that has been sort of this art form that's been kind of like in a, in a certain environment that isn't always like as accessible to everyone. So that's the thing I've been trying to focus on. We talked about the rebrand. I do think that that's something I can do to help the art form. And I do care about the art form and the community of people like I care about them. Mm-hmm. Like I've just, I don't know. I've, 
I love, I love the world of it. So I, and I want to show it to people. And so I started a new playlist, which isn't as popular because it's not anything called pop culture related. And it's, that's hard. It's that decision. I know what would be popular, but I also don't know if I, if I want to always do pop culture. I want to do something that I personally care about. And so I've taken a hit on views in the sense that like they don't get as many views, but the people that are interested in chainsaw carving and all my friends and the people that do it have been really responding and giving me like personal, Hey, I really liked this sort of feedback, which to me means so much more than the masses. The people that know it, that respond like appealing to people in your field, I think is a lot more gratifying sometimes than like getting lots and lots and lots of anonymous views. Yeah. You know, so... The camaraderie um, and these people that you see all over the world at competitions and, you know... Yeah, you know. yeah. And and I also want to, involve, I guess, involve them. The thing that I've found that's become less inspiring to me is that personal gain and mm. popularity, trying to go for popularity. Like, that's not a much... It's not a motivator for me anymore, and it needs to be because I need to keep driving my Instagram and all of that. But I've kind of, like lost my interest a little bit in just becoming a famous artist or whatever, you know, like I kind Mm. of would, I think the meaning we talked about, like Jen Hassan is an example. I I want something that I do to like have a greater purpose than just my personal gain. Yeah. No, I think about that all the time. Yeah. And I don't know. I think that in general, as we grow as people, our motivations change in life. And that's something I'm learning (laughs) in my life falling to pieces. But yeah, like the things that drive us change. I mean, we change. And then it's constantly, you're like, looking and saying, oh, well, who am I now? And what do I care about now? And what is calling to me at the moment? And who am I looking for? And I think putting our work out there is also a call to our our kindred spirits out there a little bit, you know? I think it's like we're putting that out there and we're hoping to get something reflected back. And for some of us, it's like money. I'm going to put that energy out and I want it to be transformed into money and come back. Or I want to put that out there and I want it to be transformed into attention and adoration. And then sometimes we put it out there and we hope we're going to find community or something. What do you feel like you're most inspired about just when you think about the future of your career or other things you want to do? Um, I've been finding a lot of joy and like excitement in the, well, I like problem solving. And I think that a lot of art and building making is problem solving, creative problem solving. But I've been finding that there's a lot of creativity in the business aspect of things too. And like, trying to be self-employed and trying to like do what you love, but also make it sustain you. And I've got really excited about that entrepreneurialism. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that I'm like super great at it all. I mean, I have to get help with bookkeeping. There's so many things I need help with. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I think part of learning about business is learning what you're bad at and getting help in those areas. And then also learning what you're good at and making more time for those things. Mm -hmm. So um, that's been inspiring me lately. And partly, I guess, driven by the need to just to be able to be fine on my own. And yeah. to support my daughter. Um, so I've been inspired by that. I know that doesn't sound very exciting and creative and artsy. <laughs> oh, I like it. But it's if you're going to be a working artist, it's like necessary. And they don't tell you this in art school or theater school or whatever creative feel, like degree yeah. you're getting. They don't say, right. get used to go into business, get take business classes. They should say that the moment you go into like fine arts school, they should put you into a business class. Yeah. Because it's if you're going to be an artist, unless you maybe join a collective that runs everything for you. But even still, I find no one is going to care about your work like you do. And no one is going to care about your business as much as you do. And even if you pay them, yes, you still have to be the one who cares and drives it. Mm-hmm. This has been a very <laughs> random, <laughs> random interview. It's been what? <laughs> very random interview. No. We, I think we spent 10% talking about chainsaw carving. <laughs> 
but is there yes. anything else you want to talk about um, before we... Should I say one more thing about chainsaw carving? It is the most satisfying thing, with the exception of being a mother. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Being a parent is like the ultimate creative project. That you you create something, but you also lose control over it, like Frankenstein's monster or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like you, that's the, I think the ultimate creative creative project is the one where you don't have control over it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you try, you try to convince them you have control. You right. take away their video games, but no, it's otherwise. I say change that carving is like it's very satisfying, and I think part of that is the physicality of it. Like it, and it keeps me in shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I like in general. I like people that like physical labor and can handle it and can put up with it and deal with it and like muscle through it and uh, and don't feel better than it. Like yeah. I, I I really hate the attitude of people that think they're better than hard work. Yeah, but hard physical work. Yeah. You know. So um, yeah, I like it. And and I the thing I like about it too is that it feels like that calling like I talked about where it's like that. I'll have these moments where I'm doing it and I'll just like laugh my head off. Like I was yesterday, I was carving and I made some ears. I was attaching, like I had to make some new ears for this bugbear Dungeons and Dragons carving I'm making. Yeah. And so the ears were too scrawny. So I cut them off and I reattached and I was just like happy for a moment. Doing the thing that I picked up the skill of doing like within the last couple of years, like some of these patching and repairing, building on things that I'm learning. Mm -hmm. And I got really happy to see what I can do versus when I did that first Gears of War. Yeah. You know, like I had two tools and you could tell and like, I didn't know what I was doing and it turned out okay, but it took days and days and days to do a thing that now would take me a couple hours. Yeah. And then to, to be doing something now that when I saw other people doing it looked like magic and it's like, <laughs> I don't know. And I guess maybe that's not just carving. That's just everything. But, um, yeah. just seeing, seeing yourself improve, having more and more capabilities and then, but carving itself, I'm just be like, I was carving like some fur and I went and down and I started carving his feet and I did this like, had this perfect like collection of toes and I just like laughed my head off over it. Like I just, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to explain, but like, it's just exciting that I would like go to the sawmill and like, there's most people don't have a reason to do that. But like my shopping is like, I got to go to the sawmill and I like it. Somebody will come out and bring this like loader and like pick up, I'll be like, I want that one and that one. And they pick up this like 20 foot log and throw it in the back of my trailer. And it's like <laughs> just satisfying on every level, you know, to just to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I like it. And I like that what's reflected back, like the people's, the interest and like people that I haven't seen like since, since high school or like getting a hold of me on Facebook and like talking about chainsaw carving with me. Like that's, it's, it's just exciting. Yeah. The whole process is exciting. <laughs> I guess I could just say thanks then. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we can keep talking. No, but. it's good. We should have, we should have created an outline before we started. <laughs> I hope we got all the points. I think it was good. All right. Good, good. Uh, hopefully people will leave with a new excitement or interest in chainsaw carving. Yeah. I don't I, know if that was the goal, but maybe it's the I goal. I have no doubt that they will. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thanks Griffin. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At austinarttalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care.